We read today from Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all everything to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will give us great insight uh, as we study this passage together this morning. I want to pray that through your Holy Spirit, you will now open our hearts and our minds to hear and to see clearly what you have uh, for us this morning. We pray that we will not leave here the same, but that we will be transformed by encountering you through your word this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're looking uh, at this passage in Colossians from chapter 1 and I, I particularly want to focus on, um, on verses 21 to 24. Now, we've been thinking about what it means to have joy in God. And last time I was preaching, uh, we were talking about we can have joy in suffering when we see that, uh, when we recognize that it is actually God who is shaping us through our suffering. And, and today we're going a little bit deeper again, and we're looking at the joy we get when we have peace with God. And so, as I said, I want to focus on verses 21 to 23. Now, this is obviously quite a short little text, but it's by no means insignificant. And what happens in verse 15 uh, up to verse 20 is that Paul is describing the uh, surpassing greatness of who Jesus is. You know, in verses 15 and 16, he describes Jesus as being superior to all of creation. In verse 17, he shows that he's superior to time and space. In verse 18 and 19, he shows that Jesus is the head of the church and that we exist as a body of believers only because of what he has done for us. And then in describing this wonder and this uh, superiority, this magnificence of who Christ is, all of a sudden, Paul pauses and it's like he wants to take time in our verses from 21 to 23 to give us some teaching about what it means uh, to believe in the gospel, about the beauty of, uh, of what we believe. Paul wants to take a break about 
describing the supremacy of Christ, just to explain and recap the essence of the gospel. And then he continues on with his letter uh, describing what the consequences of the gospel are. And you can read the rest of that in the rest of the book of Colossians. Now, what is it that Paul wants us to understand here? In verse 21 to 23, I think he wants to really give us three things that we need to focus on. First is our alienation from God, our reconciliation in Christ, and then finally the steadfast hope we have for the future. So we're going to be looking at those three things this morning. The first thing that Paul does is he takes the time to describe our alienation from God. This is verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds as shown by your evil behavior. Now, it's worth noting that what Paul writes here is actually written to believers. These are people who already know Jesus. They had come to faith. He's not speaking to everyone in the city of Colossae. He's, he's writing only to the church in that town or in that city. And he tells them that once you were alienated from God. Now, the word Paul uses here in the Greek is, is chosen pretty carefully. It happens only twice in the whole Bible, here and in the book of Ephesians, where a similar sort of thing is described. And it's not a common word at all. And so he's chosen this word uh, very carefully, and it, it means different or other. He's making the point that human beings outside of Jesus Christ are other than God. They are separated from God. They are, we, we are completely different. Our core is fundamentally set against God. It's kind of like oil and water. You can stick them together, but they will always separate, even if you shake it up a little bit. And this is a problem that human beings have. We used to be like God, didn't we? We bore His image. That doesn't mean we were God. We were like God. We bore His likeness. Uh, but we were made in God's image. In the Garden of Eden, uh, human beings are described as being made in the image of God. And because of our image-bearingness, Adam and Eve could walk and talk with God in the cool of the day. They had face-to-face -face discussions with God, and it was good to be able to do that. But as sin came into the world when Adam and Eve ate from that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Sin entered into the human race and it corrupted our very nature. Our image-bearing nature was distorted. It's still there, it's not completely gone, but it has been corrupted. It's a little bit like sin acts like a cancerous tumour. Now the thing about tumours is that they are made... Uh, they're made up of cells of the same organism, aren't they? They're not a different kind of thing that invades you. It's not a disease that infects you. A tumour is your own cells that have been corrupted, that have had their DNA twisted somehow or the, um, the, the, the bits that make them stop reproducing turned off or something. But when you look at healthy tissue and tumorous tissue, they are the same, this is, it's your tissue, but they are completely different. Compared to God, our sinfulness has changed our, um, our very nature that we are kind of like that tumour. Still, we still bear the image of God, but we have become alien, completely other than the almighty creator of the universe. And so Paul then says, 
Or what does this alienness look like? What does separation, otherness from God look like? And he gives us two ways in which this is expressed. First is hostile minds and evil deeds. If you like, internal wickedness in our brains and hearts and external evil that we do with our bodies. So let's first deal with the external stuff because they're a little bit easier. External evil deeds are pretty obvious. These are the things which God condemns as wicked, as evil. They are the external actions that show the internal wickedness in our hearts. Now, it's pretty easy to point a finger this way. You know, it's those wicked murderers out there. It's those evil people who steal things, those who shoplift and disrespect their elders and tell the children's talk lady, I'm not singing. (laughs) Those who use God's name in vain, those wicked adulterers, you know, those wicked sinners, those people out there. It's easy to point the finger and say, you know, look how wicked they are. But the reality is, friends, when we look at evil actions, we ignore uh, and sort of judge people on the basis of that. We ignore the start of the verse. What does, what does Paul actually says? But you, you were alienated from God and hostile in mind, expressed in your evil actions. You. You doesn't describe the wicked people out there. It describes us. Christians, people who love God. We need to grapple with the fact that the wicked people are outside of Jesus, the ones who do all the evil deeds, used to be us. Probably still us, is us to an extent. Our hearts are corrupt and bent upon evil. And without Christ, that's all we will ever be. You know, Christians are often criticized for being hypocrites, you know. We're saying, you naughty boy, you shouldn't have done that, and ignoring the fact that we do just the same sorts of things. But true Christianity, true belief in Jesus, true gospel Christianity leaves no room for us to feel superior to those around us. In fact, with humanity, we are all on the same level playing field. There's no us, the holy ones, and they, the evil ones. All we get is, there but for the grace of God go I. Were it not for Jesus through his Holy Spirit who had changed me, I would be the wicked one out there doing the evil deeds, this outward evil, the deeds that are obvious. We all share the problem of a broken heart, a heart that aches after God but seeks for him in all the wrong places. And our friends and family members who don't believe in Jesus are still stuck in that same problem. And were it not for the grace of God that chose to save one such as I, we would all still be in that same position. That's the evil outside deeds. But the far more difficult one, I think, for us to wrestle with is the hostility of the mind, the inward uh, evil actions. Paul says here, once you were alienated and hostile in your mind as expressed by your evil actions. So what is this hostility of the mind? Well, the theological dictionary defines it as follows. Uh, I think this is actually quite helpful, so bear with me. It says, it's an inner disposition leading to hatred, irrespective of its manifestation or otherwise visible form. 
Now what they're saying is, it is an internal way of being, it's a, a way of thinking, it's a, a desire, a want, uh, a want for evil, whether or not you actually do it or not, We're, irrespective of its manifestation in visible form. It's an internal state that hates God, that hates good, that is totally uh, independent from actually doing the evil deed. And that challenges us, doesn't it? Because we live in a system, in a world, where you don't go to jail because you wanted to steal something. It's when you actually steal something, isn't it? But here Paul is writing that our alienation from God comes from this inward disposition that wants to do the wrong thing, whether or not we do it at all. Because we see that those around us, the, you know, these, these people here, we are good people. And by human standards, I think we're good. Or you look at those outside who, who give away their Saturday so that they can coach and referee the local Auskick game, but they don't trust in Jesus. There are people that work in the community and, and um, uh, dedicate tons of their free time serving in volunteer positions, soup kitchens, animal shelters, whatever, but they don't trust in Christ. There are people who give away their time and their money to worthy causes, to see others raised up, but who don't trust in Jesus. And there are perhaps even people here today who have come to church every Sunday for the last 20, 30 years who have this external appearance that they trust in Jesus, but whose hearts have never been touched by the reality that they are completely other outside of Christ. People who have trusted in their church attendance or their uh, diligence at working bees, the amount of time they've spent as an elder or a deacon, the depth with which they have studied the Bible, but who have never really truly admitted in their heart that we are not good enough to be right with God no matter what we do. And that actually our good deeds can never outweigh the sin debt that we owe God. Well, that we actually truly need Jesus because there is this separation between us and God. Friends, to some extent, all of us suffer from this wickedness of mind, this hostility of mind, even though we have no external evil deeds. But there is a cure for that. The way we deal with this hostility of mind, Paul says, um, he, he gives us the reason. He says once he's reminded his readers of their alienation of, against God, he moves on to describe the cure. And he, see, and he says, this is how you are reconciled to Jesus. This is verse 22. Uh, he says, but now he has reconciled you, he's cured you, uh, by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. So verse 21 describes our need for Jesus because we have this internal hostility and external evil deeds. Verse 22 gives us the cure. He says, you're so broken, you're so different to the holiness of God, both internally and externally, uh, but here is the cure. God has reconciled you through Jesus. Now what does it mean to be reconciled? Put simply, Reconciliation is a, is a restoration of friendly relationships. It's, it's a bridge that gets built between broken relationships. Imagine, if you will, you have, um, uh, you have a family relative who's never gotten on 
with anyone in the family. And over the years, their relationship deteriorates more and more and more, grows more and more hostile. And one day, they patch up their relationship. You know, they go out for beers, they talk it all out, and the tension that has been building within the family for so many years is finally relaxed. And the whole family breathes this kind of collective sigh of relief because at the next Christmas dinner, you know, auntie such and such is not going to fight with mum again or whatever the case may be. Now, that is what reconciliation is. It's this building and restoration of relationships. Now, Paul doesn't give the Colossian church much detail about how they are reconciled to God because he's writing to Christian people. People who would have known that their reconciliation, their relationship with God was restored through the death of Jesus on the cross, through his resurrection uh, that brings them new life. That Jesus took their sin on, their, uh, on his shoulders and he has made them right with God. He's paid the debt. And so Jesus was abandoned by God the Father and he poured out his wrath on his own son, this extreme anger and punishment against his people. In fact, Jesus becomes the alien one so that we could be adopted as his children. God's son who for all his life, his, for all of existence really, lived in a relationship of perfect love with God the Father, became sin for us. And he willingly took our sin, our otherness on him so that we could once again walk and talk with God. Friends, that's how reconciliation works. Jesus lived the life we should have lived to give us the life we don't deserve. And he died the death we should have died so that we can live eternally. It's an amazing thing. And so Paul, in writing this letter, stresses that Jesus' death was a physical death. He actually died. But because he actually died, we can be reconciled to God. Now he stresses his physical death because in a way it has to do with the previous verse, the uh, the evilness that lived inside us. You see, our sin, our alienness, our separatedness from God so completely changes us that unless we die, we cannot be born again. There is a sense in which our old self must be put to death in order for us to come alive again in Christ. And this is a daily struggle that all of us have to go through therefore we say we have to bear our cross you know to put to death the old self that wants to hate god uh, has this hostility of mind and this evilness in action that wants to live separate from god that is a daily killing of the old self and that's why paul in romans talks about we are offering our bodies as living sacrifices there is a death that happens every time we choose to serve god and not our own fleshy desires. But now, imagine how weak our faith would be, how wishy-washy it would have been if we said, yeah, Jesus died only spiritually, and was spiritually raised again. How weak our hope for the future would be if Jesus did not really physically die. How limp the strength of our conviction would be if Jesus only rose spiritually from the dead. But as it happens, Jesus rose physically from the dead to prove once and for all that his sacrifice actually did 
what it was supposed to do. It made us right with God. God accepted his sacrifice. The whole uh, you know, debt of sin was paid. And that's why Paul so stresses his physical death. And so if the problem is this hostility of mind and these evil actions and Jesus is the answer of, of reconciliation, what do we do with that? How do we actually live in the reality of our peace with God? Well, that's the last thing that Paul uh, wants us to look at this morning. He says, um, sorry, I've just lost my place here, which is unhelpful. He says, we are going to have a steadfast hope. Verse 23. Now, if you continue in this faith, established and firm, and you do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. You see, the fact that Jesus physically died, physically rose from the, death, uh, from, from the dead, uh, and gives us new life, gives us a steadfast hope, a, a solidness to our faith. A faith that does not shift with the wind. You know, the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection and our new life that we get to live uh, for him as a result of, uh, of, of what he's done for us gives us a grounding that other people cannot have. There is a solidity to the Christian that uh, when they believe in the true physical death and resurrection of Jesus. This is not a solidity that necessarily happens overnight for most of us. It's maybe a lifelong journey as we grow and deepen in faith. You know, it's true that God will meet us wherever we are. He's having meals with tax collectors and prostitutes and Pharisees. He meets us where we are. But he doesn't expect us to just stay there. Paul wants us to persevere in our faith. When we are saved, we are to grow into the likeness of Christ. We are to keep going. We have a responsibility, friends, to seek God, to study his word, to regularly pray and devote ourselves to him, to pursue his presence, to serve him where he happens to lead us, to meet with one another as believers, to encourage one another and instruct one another in the faith, to grow together in our fellowship with other Christians. And over time, friends, this produces within us a certain steadfastness, an unshifting faith grounded in the truth of the gospel. We have to grow. And this is important for us, particularly living in today's day and age, for two reasons. And I want to finish with this, so stick with me. Firstly, because it means that our perception of right and wrong is not swayed by common opinion. We need steadfastness if we are going to stick with what Scripture says. You know, society, no matter when you live, will disagree with you on something. At the moment, our society disagrees with us on our sexual ethic, on abortion, on euthanasia, on gender ideology and so on. But the Bible will always disagree with the world on something because if we get these things right, then we would get those things wrong. Or if we live 200 years from now, we might get these things right, but we might get these things wrong. The Bible will always disagree with the world on something. 
But that is why it is good news for us that we can have a steadfastness based on the truth of Scripture. Because it says the Lord is the Lord of my life, not what the common opinion is today. In fact, we believe that we aren't perfect just the way we are. Yes, Jesus will meet us where we are, but he's not going to leave us there because we're not perfect. We will follow Christ and turn out to be more like him because we're not perfect. We're going to remain steadfast, not swayed by common opinion, not by what the world decides is right and wrong today, whether that vilifies us for believing in God or not. We need that steadfastness because we are choosing to glorify not ourselves, but the God who gives us the world. So our steadfastness has to be grounded in the gospel. And that gives us the sure hope for the future. That's the second thing. You see, we don't hold out hope uh, that one day maybe something might happen. We have a sure hope that our future is secure. Christians know our future is secure. It may not seem like that always. In fact, it might seem, at least in the Western world, as if the future of Christianity is uncertain. Every year the number of Christians seems to dwindle a little bit more uh, and we think that this is a terrible thing. But friends, the reality is that our steadfastness, grounded in the truth of Jesus, assures us that even if persecution was to come, even if we are vilified, even if we're called bigots and assaulted and killed and all of those things, our future is secure because the gospel is true. And even if we are to die for our faith, well then, Jesus will just resurrect us and we'll live with him forever. And that's not a bad position to be in. It's for this reason that Matthew writes, or that Jesus says in Matthew 10, don't be afraid of those who can only kill the body but cannot do anything to the soul. Friends, we don't need to fear the world. We fear God who gives us the hope. A steadfast hope when things are going well, that it is well because of, uh, because of Christ. And a steadfast hope when things are going poorly, that it will one day go well because of Jesus Christ. And a steadfast hope that eternally it will go well with us and that we don't need to fear death because our death has already been paid for by Jesus Christ. And so we can have the steadfast assurance that no matter what happens, we are right with God. Yes, it's true. Once we were alienated and hostile in our minds as expressed through our evil actions. But we have been reconciled by the physical death of Jesus Christ so that now we can have this steadfast hope for the future. And that's a beautiful thing to be living with in 2023. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can have a steadfast hope grounded in the, in the truth of the gospel in a faith that does not waver with common opinion. Thank you that you have reconciled us through your Son, through the death of Jesus on the cross, which was paid for us, so that now we can be adopted as your children and that we know that our future is secure no matter what happens. And so we praise you, Lord, uh, that we can be in this privileged position 
with a, a sure hope for the future. And at the same time, Lord, we think of all our friends and family, co-workers, school friends, that really are still alienated from God, that are hostile to him both in mind and action. O oh Lord, have mercy. May they come to know you as you reveal yourself to them, even through us. We pray that we might share the reason for the hope that we have. In Jesus' name. Amen.